Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rosil and my guest today is William Mao. He is the Vice President of Media Rights Consulting at Octagon. William has had a very cool career based around media and consulting and media rights and everything that he's done in between 30 under 30 from Forbes, which is fantastic. Studied at the London Business School. Fantastic. Yale. Fantastic. So he had a lot of information about media rights, how it works, what he does and how he does it. So very grateful that I had the opportunity to chat with William. So without further ado, here is the show. Today, my special guest on For the Love of Sports is William Mao. He is the Vice President of Media Rights Consulting at Octagon, formerly the Vice President of Digital at MP, MP and Silva, formerly Manager of Sports Content Partnerships at YouTube, uh, Master Plan Group International, IMG. The list goes on and on. Forbes 30 under 30. Again, congratulations on that one. William, I appreciate hanging out with me today, man. Thanks for having me, Michael. Good to hear from you again. Pleasure is all mine. So, William, first question I have for everyone on For the Love of Sports is, why do you love sports so much? Um, I mean, for me, it's always been sort of a, a passion point, um, whether it was uh, playing all different types of sports growing up um, or just it always sort of was the backdrop for a lot of um, social interactions and, and great childhood memories growing up. And then obviously at some point, most of us realized that um, – probably our athletic aspirations kind of fall by the wayside some earlier than others. And then uh, for me, it just became like uh, an, an interesting opportunity I felt to kind of combine a personal passion with sort of the business side and, and uh, been fortunate enough to, to make that happen. Absolutely, man. Fortunate enough, you worked really hard to get there. I guess people say it in different ways, but I appreciate you being a little humble about that. And I guess when, um, when did you finally realize that those athletic dreams might not take you exactly to where you wanted to get to? Uh, pretty early on. Yeah. Uh, I joke about this story where uh, apparently, um, you know, when I was maybe in elementary school, at one point I went home and I told my, my mom, I was like, Hey, uh, I think I've decided, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, it's a great job. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, if you do it well, you can make a lot of money. And I was like, I think that's what I want to do. And she was like, what is it? And I said, I want to, I want to play in the NBA. Right. <laughs> Uh, basketball is sort of my, my first sport of, of, of choice. Uh -huh. And, you know, her reaction was not something I expected. She was like, oh, it's such a great idea. Um, yeah, if you work hard, you can, you, you can definitely do that, And which I thought was really odd. I didn't think she would have that sort of reaction. And as that sort of train of conversation went on a little longer, I, I soon found out. She soon found out we had crossed our wires. She uh, thought I was being super mature from my age and already talked about going to get an MBA, like a master's in business oh. administration, where I was obviously talking about playing basketball. And and so that's why she was so maybe encouraging at that point. Uh, but once we clarified, then then there was just a, then there was just like a, a smile and a nod. Uh, and, oh. and I soon pretty soon realized that that was not a thing. <laughs> that is pretty funny though. Shout out to your mom. That is uh that's a great story, man. Um, that is a pretty, pretty funny story crossing those wires. And I guess MBA, 
NBA. I could see where she's coming from. I can't really blame her on that one. And it's funny yeah. how eventually you guys kind of got to the same point and realized, oh, wait a second. Might not exactly. get to where we're trying to get to. So um, I saw that you are you studied psychology at Yale and strategy at the London Business School. So you've used some pre- prestigious places. You've been to some cool, pretty, pretty prestigious places. Did As you said, the, the passion was always there. But uh, did you always want to work in sports? Was that kind of from the gun, like right out of college? Like, all right, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I would say that in college, I think if you asked uh, even some of my my roommates or friends, I was always something that I, I kind of put out there, like I would love to to work in sports someday. Didn't know exactly what. I think maybe during that time, the most um, relevant touch point for most people was you know the movie Jerry Maguire, mm-hmm. right? So everyone was talking about being a sports agent uh, when when you said you wanted to work in sports. And um, uh, my sort of college summer internship. Uh, focus really was trying to trying to make that happen, right? So uh, one summer I worked for like um, a a basketball and uh, football and soccer those types of camps uh, as a as a volunteer coach. Then one summer had an opportunity to work for a sports agent Josh Wright out in Chicago for his uh, group called Master Plan, which focused on a lot of uh, football players both in the NFL but as well as uh, in the Arena Football League as well. Um, that then allowed for the opportunity to um, then get an opportunity the following summer to work with IMG and their new business development group. Um, and then sort of maybe as you, as you kind of referenced early on, there, there was sort of this period of time where I wasn't in the sports industry. And that was mainly on the advice of some of uh, my mentors that I had over those summer internships um, who were saying, look, yeah, you know, the traditional sports agency route, a lot of folks may say you need to go get a law degree but you soon find out that maybe that may necessarily not necessarily be even a requirement either. Um, But they recommended like, Hey, every organization uh, is a business at the end of the day. And so learning some business skills, whether that is financial analysis or uh, strategy development, or just learning how to work with um, executives or working for executives um, would be beneficial so that you're not really starting from the very, very bottom of the Mm -hmm. rung. And so consulting as a, industry and as a profession seem to fit that mold and check that box in a lot of ways. And so that's how I ended up kind of uh, focusing on opportunities in the consulting world and did that for a couple of years, then used business school as an opportunity to try to pivot back into the space. Very cool. And so during those years, I saw a lot of it had to do with finance, I guess. Um, so, you know, shout out to you. I did finance for a couple of years was not my thing. So congrats on sticking there as long as you did. But with that, like when you when you make that deliberate decision to say, okay, I understand that, you know, starting from the bottom and making it all the way to the top in sports, it's a very long time. Not that that's a bad thing. And there's a lot that you have to do along the way. If you can kind of circumvent that and kind of go around, learn a skill in another place and then kind of pop back in when you when you're actually in it though you know it's easy to say okay this is what i'm going to do but when you're actually in it was it difficult to say all right i'm actually going to take myself you know i've done so much in finance and consulting and business strategy how hard is it to actually take yourself finally out of it and say okay now i'm gonna go back to the sports world where maybe the dollar amounts not as well or or or, you know maybe i don't know everybody and the the network isn't the same how 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 did you kind of wrestle with that idea when you're actually coming back into the sports realm yeah, I think that's a very good question because on the one hand, uh, when it comes to working in sports, um, it's sort of chicken and egg, right? People are always looking for folks who have relevant experience, primarily having worked in sports. And so it's all about like getting that first job because if you get the first one, then it 
more likely begets the next one and the next one. It's always the first one that's toughest. And while people on a sort of philosophical level could can uh, agree with you that, hey, if you learn how to do business strategy or you learn how to analyze financial statements or you learn how to uh, develop pricing strategies, whatever the discipline may be in another industry or another sector, that it stands to reason that you can and you have the aptitude to kind of bring those skills over into your discipline within sports it's still sort of a, a big, relatively big uh, mental jump for folks to take a chance on someone versus uh, working at, working with someone who, or hiring someone who already has proven that ability within this specific sector. So for me, um, it wasn't necessarily knowing exactly what I wanted to do in the sports space, but I felt that having worked in the consulting industry, and I think a lot of my colleagues, contemporaries and, and from that sector would agree, you've, you feel very comfortable working on different types of problems and taking different approaches um, to solving complex issues. And so there wasn't the fear of not being able to demonstrate the value, but more so just finding the right fit. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the consulting industry, there's often different milestones and points in your career where you can decide to um, stay within your firm, look around, work within your client industry or as as a lot of folks do maybe even look to go back to school uh and get some sort of a graduate degree and that's what i ultimately decided to mm -hmm. and so you you went and got that graduate degree at london business school correct correct so you were over there and you were at the time working for youtube yeah so that that opportunity came about uh while i was there in london um there was already sort of a lot of activity going on in the sports space in general because the 2012 Olympics were going to be in London and I was there from 2010 to 2012. Um, but I, if I were to say that that was sort of premeditated in specific, uh, I would be completely lying. It was really much a very much a situation of being in the right place at the right time. Um, and I actually got uh, hired by uh, two alums from my business school. Who were working at YouTube at the time. It was during a period where YouTube was starting to really get into sports partnerships. Obviously, working on the live streaming of the London 2012 Olympics was a big impetus for that as well uh, from a product perspective. And so uh, for me, it was an opportunity that kind of came sort of not from necessarily official Google or YouTube hiring channels that usually go to business schools and recruit. Mm -hmm. It was really opportunistic insofar as they had a sudden need uh, for someone with actually a combination of consulting or strategy experience and an interest in sports, or at least dabbled in sports on some level. And, and uh, that kind of worked out uh, to my advantage, having checked both of those boxes for them. And so um, that's how the YouTube opportunity uh, happened. And it very much was kind of that first step back into the space that kind of uh, allowed the rest of this to happen. And how much, when, when you're making that step, uh, so I'll be totally honest, the way I you know, thought the story went was you got the job at YouTube and they're like, hey, you can go to London Business School. And in reality, it's you're at London Business School because you knew you wanted to get back into the space. And this incredible opportunity just came about um, in London. As you said, it wasn't premeditated, but you can lie. You could tell us it was. That's totally fine. <laughs> and we'll believe you. Um, and, and that opportunity comes about through, you know, the networking and what, you know, that's one thing I know, um, you know, within sports, it seems like this giant, giant industry, but really everybody kind of like two degrees, three degrees away from everybody else. How did you, how, how quickly did you find out again, you know, being out of the sports world for a few years and then coming back in, how quickly and easily were you able to navigate building that type of network 
that quickly, especially, you know, here in the States and, and there over in London? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, it's it probably one of the core sort of underlying questions of like, how do you, how do you kind of mechanically go mm-hmm. about it? And um, most, whether it's MBA programs or other uh, graduate programs, there aren't as many that are specifically focused on sports or sports management, right? We start to see more of those now, Columbia has one, NYU, even UCF and, and other uh, institutions. Um, but most traditional MBA programs uh, don't have like a major focus in sport. And so uh, the, the impetus is almost more so on the individual. And so for me, uh, that took the form of working and getting involved with the sports business club or the sports business focused organization that was student led out of London Business School and using that as a platform to engage and network, right? And so it, it, it does help at least one or two clicks in terms of relevance to be able to say, hi, uh, I'm William, I'm a student at London Business School. Uh, I'm a, you know, helping the sports business club organize an event or, or get information. Uh, can I connect with you to discuss versus it just being a little bit more of a cold email mm-hmm. uh, and saying, hi, you know, I, you, a lot of the same things except for that last piece of the puzzle yeah. <laughs> uh, that really is the, the key sticky point. Um, and so it, I felt that the, the onus was on, on myself as well as, you know, kind of troubleshooting or problem solving with some classmates who had a similar interest, right? And so uh, in being able to do that, uh, we kind of pulled resources, shared information, made contacts for each other. And ultimately that, um, that was a very positive sort of impact on, on the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine that just sounds fantastic, just meeting all those incredible people. Um, and I'm sure that network goes around the world too, right? Like that has to be, there, there's probably so many opportunities that you can dabble in uh, into just through that network alone. Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. So one, obviously the, I already kind of talked about how the, the school specific alumni mm-hmm. connection was really uh, the core reason I had the opportunity to work at YouTube. Shout out to Jeff Nathanson and Aya Maroney uh, from, from back in the day. And, uh, and also on campus, there were a couple of uh, elective courses you could take in sports and entertainment. And so there was a professor who ended up being sort of my advisor on the second year sort of research project you all had to do to, to complete your degree. And it was Professor Chris Voss. And he had a course where uh, every day, pretty much, there was a different, uh, not necessarily alum, but just contacts that he had in the industry that would come in and speak to the, to the class, right? So whether it was the former uh, CEO of uh, Manchester United or uh, even on the entertainment side, right, folks that, that ran different organizations, we were able to kind of interact with them and, and build a touch point there as well. That, yeah, that doesn't happen every day. Uh, you don't get to hang out with the, the right. higher ups at Manchester United, uh, you know, obviously one of the most well-known clubs, football clubs in the, uh, in the entire world. I think that's incredible. And it sounds like you had some fun there too. So uh, shout out, you know, if I, uh, if I ever get the opportunity, I'll make sure to take it up. I'll hopefully be able to drop your name and they'll say, oh yeah, you're his friend. You can come on in. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me. And with, with the opportunity at YouTube, again, you know, how did, how were you able to take those four or five years in that finance and consulting and strategy? How are you able to pull that over to what you were doing at YouTube, um, especially considering now you're working on partnerships or, or working on managing these partnerships. How, how easily was some of that um, past work replicated or, or used and how much did you have to learn kind of on the fly? It was a couple of things. I mean, you're definitely learning on the fly for sure. Uh, I felt that maybe initially the value that I could bring that could complement the others on my team 
um, more generally and more broadly that come from dif different disciplines, whether it's folks that were uh, it had spent a lot of time working within the Google YouTube world. And so they had the connectivity and the understanding of how the, that business operated uh, versus colleagues who may have worked on the ad sales side. So I knew how the sort of revenue generating side of the business worked or colleagues who came from maybe a marketing or, or sports specific business that had the wealth of, ex of just years of, of knowledge that was uh, going to be valuable to the team as well. I felt like the piece of the puzzle that I, I helped to bring was initially definitely uh, the analytic bent, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like, you whether you're on a platform like YouTube or really in today's age, a lot of different platforms have so much information that's being gathered and tabulated, but you still have to like take all that information and distill it down into uh, important quantifiable metrics, but also actionable insights. And so I felt like that was maybe a role that I could naturally fit into at the outside while I was learning and developing all those other uh, core skills that would ultimately all feed into sort of a partnership development and a partnership management model. Because at the end of the day, it's also about like, it's not just about striking the deal. Striking the deal, a lot of times people think is like the hardest part. Uh, there are difficult elements to it, but ultimately if you're a, pl a platform or service that then has to make sure that the deal holds water or performs mm -hmm. or outperforms its expectations, then it's about sort of relationship management mm -hmm. and, and working together collaboratively. It's almost like that's when the real work starts. Um, and so over my time at YouTube, sort of really learned all those pieces of the puzzle um, just through, I should say, trial by fire, but also uh, in, in getting sort of mentorship and guidance from my colleagues. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, you can strike a deal. Uh, you know, you could promise someone in the world for a small amount of money, the deal's going to get struck. It's then, as you said, managing that relationship and managing the expectations, but actually that's, that's the difficult part. So it sounds like you've done a pretty great job at that throughout your career. And, and with, with the opportunity at YouTube working on an, uh, you know, a mega event like the Olympics, was that a good uh, trial by fire getting thrown into, you know, literally the biggest possible thing that happens once every four years? Yeah. And, and I don't want to overstep and say that you know, I had a huge part in that because by no means did I uh, really, I, I kind of was in, in their midstream and then popped out to finish my degree. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, but during my time did get to uh, help work with the folks that were part of the London organizing committee. So like the host committee mm -hmm. and what they were trying to do to activate and, and drum up interest ahead of the, the games. And then definitely YouTube uh, as a whole had a big role to play in helping to get live streaming of the Olympics really up as a thing um, for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and whether it was in London, in the U S or anywhere else. And uh, now it's almost like a, a situation where people expect it, right? Yep. Uh, it's like expectations is a part of the default setting uh, on the experience. And especially in, in the current environment, maybe even a more so uh, the default uh, going forward. And so um, definitely had some tangential interaction with it, but by no means were, were, was I sort of a, a core cog in that machine, just definitely helped to uh, make sure that all the all the things are up and running for the different organizations that were trying to launch channels. It still must have been very fun, and you probably learned a lot, again, working with a mega event like that. Um, there's so much to learn, especially when it comes to the Olympics. And, and as you said, this was kind of ground floor for streaming, right? Like, just think about it. Ten years ago, eight years ago, streaming wasn't the norm, right? Netflix still gave you... Uh, freaking dvds like the, that doesn't that doesn't barely exists anymore right right and like so what was it like learning something that really didn't like working on and learning about something that didn't really even 
have that much like thought connection to everybody else around the world. Like this is something practically brand new. Yeah. And, and that I'd give a lot of credit to really the, the folks on the product and engineering side of, of Google and YouTube for really solving all the, the core problems. Like definitely had, had some interaction definitely with the folks that were trying to sort of manage that project mm-hmm. and seeing like all the different things they were trying to take into account and usually with any service, whether it's YouTube or social media services, or even just uh, very basic uh, e-commerce platforms, right? You often don't hear about the 99% of the time when things are going well. Mm-hmm. You only hear about the things that don't go well, which oftentimes may just be like a small percentage, but also corner cases that you try to plan for every scenario and certain things just didn't work for whatever you just didn't come into your consideration set. And so it's not just about like planning ahead and having the foresight, but it's also having the mechanisms in place to mm-hmm. uh, quickly solve problems. And, and so uh, while I can't speak necessarily too much about the, the Olympic execution experience, we did uh, one of the deals that I was involved with was working with the PAC 12 network, uh, helping them to set up uh, one of the first 24 seven live sort of sports channels that was operating on YouTube outside of the US on a subscription basis. And, you know, in the same way where we're trying to, in those days, the live service platform was still relatively in its infancy. And we were trying to do it across all these different countries and on a continuous 24 seven basis, basically take, trying to take what was on cable television and make it available in other markets. Um, and so that had its own host of similar type uh, things you had to deal with and corner cases um, and one that I just remember in particular was just a, like uh, traditional geofencing of territories, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know, making sure your video is only available in Canada or Mexico or, or not available in the U.S. Um, you very rarely have to think about things like, uh, you know, there are military bases for different organizations <laughs> different yeah. countries that are in these other geographic places, but technically are U.S. territories. Um, but like maybe the the broadband or the IP connection that goes through those facilities doesn't recognize those political borders. And so like, oh, you're accidentally blocking a constituency that you're really trying to serve. And so mm-hmm. those kinds of, of scenarios always pop up. And, and um, as much as you plan, you may not be able to solve all of them right off the bat. That is, <clears throat> that is very interesting. Yeah, that's not something you know you would immediately think of off the top, but I'm sure that was quickly brought to your attention and you guys got to deal with that when, when needed. So after London, you actually stayed with YouTube to work here in the States as well. What, um, was this a promotion? Was just, did you just want to come back home? Uh, what was the reason? I mean, staying with the company, obviously you clearly liked what they were doing. How did that, you know, transition then happen back here over the States? Uh, it was more of a, uh, uh, it, was that def- it was just an, an opportunity that opened up right out. So I finished my business degree um, in, in the summer, definitely stayed in London to experience the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just through, through the, that period of time, there was an opportunity on the North American team that opened up. Um, and I taught and, and I had uh, interacted through my time in London with the head of North America at the time uh, who ended up being my boss, Frank Golding. Uh, and so Frank and I chatted, uh, about whether it would be a good fit for me to come back to New York, whether I was interested in it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so ultimately decided to, to make the move back to New York um, and then joined the team here, which was focused primarily on building and developing partnerships 
with rights holders, sports leagues, organizations um, that are developing sports content uh, in the United States. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was right after the, the Summer Olympics. And then it was really in, in what, October, I think, October, November of that year, um, moved back to New York and then started working here. And what, what was different about working with the leagues rather than managing the partnerships? Well, I think the leagues are partners, right? So it's, yeah, it's, that's, it's, yeah, there's, that's... There's, there's not that much of a distinction from that perspective. It's just you're working with different entities, right? So okay. um, different organizations, I guess, split the world into different, in different ways. And so obviously it made sense from a geographic perspective to have the team in the United States try to develop partnerships with leagues and rights holders in the U.S. and then the team in the U.K. and Europe focusing on mm-hmm. on on Europe, but obviously you're working for a global platform. So you're as much as possible trying to develop partnerships that don't have as many of those restrictions geographically so that the user, the consumer experience is very seamless. You no, never want a situation where like you promote something, but it actually some consumer in some market clicks and they actually see it. You can't watch this mm-hmm. kind of sign. Um, but Overall, it was just focusing on different sets of content providers and content developers and license holders, right? And so in the U.S., obviously, you have the, the big sporting leagues, you have uh, college conferences and the NCAA, um, you have individual creators that, that they themselves uh, on a platform like YouTube, if they're, if they're native to that platform, can build massive followings even much larger than um, than the traditional uh, leagues and brands that you think of when it comes to sports. And so we try to cast as wide a net using our resources as possible to deploy and try to a uh, cover as many different spheres as possible, but also work in coordination so that we're not kind of stepping on each other's toes and uh, both trying to talk to the same entity at the same time. That makes sense. And that, that also sounds like a lot of fun. Now you're, you know, dealing with the NFL and the MLB, and I'm sure you had some fun conversations with them and how all of that works. So uh, you were at YouTube here in the States for a couple more years. You then end up uh, changing positions, going to another place, MP and Silva. Uh, I did not know much about them until I checked out their website. So what exactly was it? So you worked at YouTube in London, you worked here then in the United States and in New York. What was the reason for uh, was it a level up opportunity to to move on and go to another um, another company, or or what was the reason for change there? I always like to kind of understand the the backing a little bit. Sure, it was a, com- a combination of of a lot of the things you you just mentioned. So uh, one, it was an opportunity to uh, kind of I would say dive further into sports. Um, MP and Silva is was a uh, an, an agency that was uh, primarily focused on the uh, sales and distribution of sports broadcast rights for rights holders primarily outside of their home territory, right? So it could be working for back then the Italian Serie A on all it's trying to help them secure deals uh, for the Serie A a soccer league everywhere outside of Italy. Or um, one of the, the partnerships that was struck in the US was working with the NFL on their international opportunities in markets in Europe um, and, and uh, North Africa, right? And so those types of deals are more to the core, I guess, meat and potatoes of, mm-hmm. of sports rights, um, right? It's the, the pay TV, free to air television rights, which are the most valuable and particularly the live rights. And so um, that in and of itself 
uh, was an exciting proposition to, to have an opportunity to work on and with um, that organization. And then, yeah, there was this opportunity to, I guess, as you called it, level up or, or as it were, um, and, and kind of take a greater leadership role within an organization because the opportunity was to help establish a, um, a, an office and a business in the Americas, North and South America, which up until that point, there were some uh, staff doing some deals in this market, um, but the heritage of MPN Silva was a business that was uh, Singapore and London headquartered, and so Europe and Asia focused. Um, and so this was an opportunity to help start almost like the news division or the news mm -hmm. business unit of a relatively well-established agency that was doing um, you know, 600, $700 million in turnover per year uh, on its rights. And so uh, it felt like a, a good fit and a good opportunity. A good, it, made, it made a logical step for me. While, while I didn't know necessarily where I ultimately want to end up uh, down the line, it felt mm -hmm. like this move was in the right direction and allowed me to do, still have sort of flexibility to work further in the space. Exactly. And so just, just so I make sure I have it correct, instead of working for the company like YouTube where you air the content, you're now working for the content creators at that point. So you're working for, you're on the other side of the table, correct? Uh, you're, you're more so, think of us as like a, a, a we were like a broker okay. for the rights. And yeah. so, okay. um, yeah, our, our core constituency was, were, the, were in many ways the same partners that we were trying to do deals with at YouTube, right? And so in the same way that YouTube would talk to the NFL, uh, MP and Silva would talk to the NFL about their rights as well. Um, but the role that those organizations are trying to play and almost on some level the types of rights they may be trying to ask for uh, in terms of their remit um, are, are very different. And to what you were saying, our role was to help uh, strike a relationship with the rights holder that would allow us then to take their rights to market for them, sell them in a different territory to uh, the broadcasters in that market and hopefully make a margin, right? That's the end of the day, mm -hmm. what that business was versus if you are a service or a platform like YouTube or a traditional cable sports network, you're acquiring the rights uh, and the relationship so that you yourself can broadcast it and generate revenues off of advertising subscription or otherwise uh, for your owned and operated business. Whereas we were in the middle trying to uh, acquire mm -hmm. and then make a margin in the distribution. And that, that, okay, that makes sense. Thank you for that uh, little extra explanation. And so, as you said, I mean, so you're learning more about, I guess, both sides of the business, cause that's just, you're continuing to grow as a person. And then you also now have this opportunity to grow, as you said, a business that's already doing six, 700 million. They're essentially like, all right, here you go, William, you can have North and South America. Now you grow the business here. What, how, how much extra is put on your plate at that point when obviously still trying to um, satiate and still trying to serve both your, your, you know, serve your clients, but also trying to essentially grow a business um, in two different continents at once. Yeah, it's a very, uh, that was part of the, the, the excitement of the opportunity, right? Like I got hired by the new, the new sort of head of, head of America's uh, for MP and Silva, who was brought on to kind of launch the beachhead uh, mm -hmm. for their business in the Americas. And so, uh, by no means was it a, a one-man effort on my part. Of course. Uh, definitely it was just... You're too uh, humble, man. You're just way just, too just humble. Trying to, I appreciate just trying to, you, Just trying to help, help, where, help where I can. <laughs> and so it was a lot of different things, right? It was the core business. It was building the business. But also there was a lot of the, the nuts and bolts of, of running an operation. And so what that, that involved everything from like 
figuring out where the uh, where the office should be like you know we started out in a regis office and so it was like okay so at what point do we move from the regis to our actual office and where does it where is that uh like how big should it be uh how many other people should we be hiring what kind of roles do we need operationally to be successful what parts of the business do we want the sports business do we want to focus on the the company had a heritage in primarily the sports media rights part of the business. And while that is definitely going to remain a core component of the offering uh, here in North and South America, what other pieces make sense given the dynamics of this market as compared to Europe or Asia? And so that was conversations that my role was to like try to figure out, is there like digital first distribution opportunities? Is there, is there a business where we may, ourselves want to retain some of the rights we've acquired and, and put up a service ourselves to directly accrue revenues. What it doesn't make sense for this office and this region to try to go after opportunities to help on the sponsorship and entitlement side of, of the industry, which is another big piece of the pie. So it doesn't make sense to help create new events in the soccer space, given the uh, heritage that MP and Silva had as a distributor and broker of soccer rights around the world and having that expertise. And so it was not only about taking the core business and, and establishing it in a new market. It was about sort of building the actual staffing and, and operational model, as well as thinking through what other new business areas made sense. That sounds like a lot of fun. And how, how much, I guess, freedom and leeway were you and you know the rest of your team kind of given, especially understanding the market here as well as you already did? Uh, it, the, the, I mean, like all decisions maybe originally originate with us because right, we're on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, but as with all organizations, right, there is a reporting structure. There is a decision-making structure that you, 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 you adhere to and mm -hmm. you rely on, especially when it comes to those big decisions. Because at the end of the day, uh, you have to get budget cleared for new staffing. Or if you want to make that investment and rent out a, a permanent office and build it out, like you have to spec, help spec out those costs and spec out the location. Um, and then even if it is in the core business of, hey, just in the same way that our colleagues in Europe struck a deal with rights holder X, where there are certain economics tied to the underlying partnership, we're trying to do those types of deals here too, whether it's on the acquisition side where we acquire the rights we're able to then help take to market, uh, or it's on the distribution deals ultimately all those decisions have their own type of um, deal guidance mm -hmm. processes that you have to go through, whether they're internal decisions or external commercial decisions. And so our goal was just to uh, think of and bring all the right questions and opportunities to the table, provide our recommendation uh, on why we're, you know, why we think this is the right move versus not. Uh, and then, you know, feed into the macro uh, mm -hmm. business uh, operations decisions about whether that investment or that decision makes sense and what the timing of it should be. Very cool, man. And how long were you at MP and Silver for? I think uh, two, two, two and a half years, something like okay. that. If That's I recall. pretty fantastic. And now, uh, now we get to the fun part, right? Now you're at Octagon, uh, one yep. of the mo most well-known agencies, I would have to say worldwide. Granted, I'm only here in the United States. So I'll, uh, I'll assume at that point, you're the, you're a media rights consultant there, VP of media rights consulting. And um, so how did, how did that opportunity come about with Octagon, this opportunity? Uh, yeah, uh, this one was more uh, the head of our head of America's at MP and Silva, Daniel Cohen at one point, 
uh, he had an opportunity to kind of start this media rights consulting division at Octagon. And so he had left MP and Silva. Um, and then shortly thereafter, um, he had a, he reached out to me and said, hey, now I have an opportunity to kind of staff up the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I uh, wanted to give you a call, see if you were interested in, in coming on board. Uh, and he kind of explained what he thought the proposition was at Octagon. Obviously, similar to yourself, had an understanding of what Octagon as an overall business was, but this was a new business unit opportunity. And he explained, uh, obviously, we had similar experience and understanding of of the sports rights space from our shared time at MP and Silva. And so he explained more so less so what, what it is that that is the opportunity versus like how Octagon's approach and business could be a provided unique offering towards uh, servicing the, the media rights business as an advisor more so than as a traditional broker. Um, and I thought that that was seemed to be a, a good fit for really my own personal um, skill set, right? Because I was, at the core of it, first a consultant by mm-hmm. trade uh, that developed a lot of knowledge and experience working across all the, those prior companies in the sports space on the media rights side. Well, it seems to make sense that this could work uh, for me personally as, as something where I could add value uh, in, in combining really uh, in a very concerted way those two pieces of my skill set um, for a company that, like you said, has a a uh, very positive and long-standing track record as a trusted advisor in, in the sports space. Everything comes full circle, man. Look at that. Indeed. Everything comes full circle. So with what you're doing now, um, how, how do you go about, I guess, you know, say the world's still spinning on its axis and everyone's allowed outside. Like what exactly do you do for your clients and how do you go about figuring out what is the best path? And I mean, obviously everything is subjective, of course, but what are some of, I guess, the the checklists or what are some of the opportunities that you look at to make sure, okay, this is what we want client X to go in and here's Y kind of thing? Yeah, uh, so our our business kind of has three three slash four general client types. One is, as we've been talking about, even though for those other companies, it is the rights holders, right? The, the leagues, the teams, uh, federations, et cetera, that are the creator owner of the IP and the content. Um, that is probably still in our business, the majority of the client roster that we work for. Um, but because we're an advisor, um, try to advise on, on these types of broadcast deals, you could in theory also work for the other side of the table, right? Mm-hmm. There's a new uh, digital platform that is trying to get into sports for maybe the first time or they're a new service. And so uh, they want someone who can help them quickly get up to speed about the opportunities in the market, who the players are, what the values are for different types of rights in the marketplace so that they can make a decision about what they should be going to acquire right off the bat. Um, We've done that kind of work. And then third, um, third slash fourth would be sort of the investment community. And so whether that is a, uh, a private equity firm or private investors that are looking to make some sort of play in the sports and entertainment space of which the media rights is the key component of the revenue driving side of that equation. They may bring Octagon in, not just our group, but also Octagon more broadly as a subject matter expert in the same way that they might bring in uh, a PwC to make sure the books aren't cooked. They'll bring us in to be like, okay, so are the numbers we're seeing, are they good, bad, or otherwise relative to what, others in the sector 
are, are, are generating? Um, and then do we think that the numbers we see today are one point in an upward trend or the peak uh, of a downward trend, et cetera, um, and providing sort of that um, industry-specific lens to the question of what the numbers are uh, to help them make that investment decision or not. And so across all three of those, what we believe is one of our core value propositions that makes us unique is the fact that Octagon is part of the Interpublic Group, one of the biggest media buying conglomerates uh, in the world, 90 plus agencies spending close to $40 billion on behalf of our, our advertising and, and sponsorship clients uh, around the world. And so being able to uh, be availed of insights and consumption behavior uh, information based on real purchasing behavior um, is pretty powerful because then we can bring that as an underlying data component in addition to some of the stuff everyone could through subscriptions or, or research get, whether it's uh, TV ratings or uh, economic data uh, from, from different uh, sources and bring that all together as the uh, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle um, that feed into a model uh, about what the value of content, different types of content is. Mm -hmm. and, and then that dictates what your strategy should be, right? Like if you think you are uh, in a position where your, your current deals are below market value, then that gives you confidence potentially in the next negotiation you have. Uh, or if you see what others are doing in terms of how they deploy all their different rights packages, how does that inform what you should be doing uh, given where you are from a benchmarking and competitive basis to those other properties in the market? And so those are the types of ways and questions that we help tease out and then answer uh, in, in concert with, with our clients uh, to help them make a decision. So if it's a rights holder, we'll uh, either be providing all of that information sort of behind the curtain, mm -hmm. um, uh, ahead of their own direct conversations uh, with the market, or sometimes they'll ask us to kind of sit with them on their side of the table, help them navigate, open doors, develop, use our relationships along with theirs to get a successful deal done. And then on the extreme other end, uh, it could be that we get brought in as we as was the case uh, with the Peruvian national soccer team, which was, hey, uh, you guys are experts that can help us run a global sales auction tender process, help us engage the market, solicit interest, field the interest, answer questions about the rights we have on offer, help us evaluate the offers that come in, run that contest auction process, and then help us negotiate the final deal soup to nuts in addition to providing the research. I was going to say that last one, it sounds like you did everything at that point. So that must have been, uh, that must have been intensive. And I'm sure that's not the only example you have like that. And, and with working at a place like Octagon, as you said, I, I apologize, I missed the, uh, the name of the media company, but I think the number you said, which is why I missed the name was $40 billion. So I think yeah, that's Yeah, Interpublic kinda, Group. Yep. Yeah, yeah close to $40 billion in, in media and advertising spend is, is sort of under, under the umbrella in terms mm -hmm. of how we're working with our clients to help them, you know, purchase uh, ad inventory against sports and entertainment content all around, all around the world, or even uh, other forms of media, digital content, even out of home radio, whatever you call it, all of that combined is, is part of what various sister agencies are doing. And that's a, an incredible number. And being able to kind of, as you, as you put it, you can pretty much point anywhere within Octagon and get some sort of information that can help you in some way, shape or form with a specific deal, whether that is just the, the, the advising side of it, whether that's the, the meteorite side and saying, oh, well, this is what these guys are doing. You know, we should try and at least pay attention. And I just think that 
at the same time, it probably makes your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, but at what point is it almost too much information? It just sounds like you can get your hands on every single piece of data out there. How do you kind of know? I mean, again, everything's subjective. Each client's different. But how do you know which is the most important to the specific clients you're talking to? Uh, I think it, it, it varies by case. I think we have a general sense, right? Mm-hmm. Just based on having done deals and understanding what was important as discussion points in those deals, uh, as well as just what we know drives the price of a 30 second advertising spot mm-hmm. uh, on the Super Bowl versus Major League Baseball's All-Star Game versus a regular season NBA game on on Turner, right? And so um, knowing what are the underlying drivers directs us in terms of what information we go try to seek within the IPG network and, and our colleagues at Magna or Media Brands. Um, but at the, at the same time, I think that's part of the value that uh, an, an entity like our group provides mm-hmm. to our client, right? Um, a lot of the information I talk about, yeah, some of it is proprietary and internal to, to IPG and that's unique value add, but we do also take in uh, external sources, third-party sources, right? TV ratings in the US, you're going to look at someone like Nielsen or Rentrack Comscore because they're the ones that are measuring the, the TV boxes and the viewership, right? And so um, in that regard, that isn't technically an external data mm-hmm. point, but uh, and, and it's one that a league or broadcaster could acquire themselves. But part of what we're, what the value we bring is not only helping to source gather the information, but also synthesize and distill it down again into interesting insights, but more importantly, actionable insights. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that bringing it to your point back full circle, that was the same type of role that, you know, I I and my colleagues at my consulting firm right out of college were being asked to provide as well. It's like, great. We, they are oftentimes like, here's all of our information. Take, get what other, uh, other information you want, uh, help us figure out what's important. And so Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, that's what an advisor is is tasked to do right it's to help distill and find the insights that can help you drive what's next yeah and and that's a it's an awesome segue i only have two more questions for you so thank you for that and with with what's next i mean as what we're seeing right now i don't want to spend too much time on coronavirus because we're not going to be in this situation until the end of time i want people to be able to learn from you at any point in time but at this point as we're seeing i mean i think it's going to shape what happens in the future i got a Twitch account and I have been watching people play NBA 2K League the last two nights because I've needed something. I need something in my life at this point. Um, how, how are you seeing, I mean, especially coming from that digital background with YouTube being, you know, having that digital background with um, MP Silva, what are you seeing potentially moving forward with some of these opportunities? And I mean, it was already happening with, you know, Amazon buying, I can't remember whether it was EuroLeague or Premier League games for, you know, incredible amounts of money. Like how much are you seeing is going to some of these one-off providers such as YouTube, such as Amazon, such as Twitch versus kind of that, you know, regular, you know, CBS sports or ESPN opportunities. And especially moving forward now with everybody getting even more acclimated with these programs. Yeah. I think those, that's kind of maybe, uh, two separate questions, right? Sorry, the first I'm point, not great no, at no this problem, yet. <laughs> no problem. Uh, the, the first point you, you, you mentioned around like you yourself consuming more NBA 2K-esque uh, content uh, in the absence, I'm assuming, based, you know, putting yeah. in parentheses, in the absence of having the live sports to watch, you're, you're finding something relevant tangentially and related in some way uh, in terms of a touch point. And I think that behavior is something we're definitely seeing, right? 
whether it's increased gaming and gameplay and just digital video consumption. Um, that's one trend, obviously, in this current environment we're seeing, uh, as is an increase in, in listening to things like podcasts. So hopefully more people tune into this as well, right, when, when you post it. Um, but those are all uh, with that sort of underlying, yeah, w whether you are a consumer looking to fill the void in your own schedule mm -hmm. of consumption, or you are a uh, broadcaster trying to fill those hours with something else. You brought up 2K, the uh, NBA ESPN just announced, right, a players only 16 player mm -hmm. tournament uh, for 2K that'll be on ESPN starting this Friday. I think that's uh, a clear example of uh, shoulder content or ancillary content, whether it's esports or just having a lot more of these like interviews with players at their homes uh, talking about different topics. Those are things that we are seeing uh, as being of greater value now, in addition to what you've probably seen on television as well, which is a lot of replays and archives and highlight shows uh, replacing some of those live viewing windows. And I think at some point, uh, they, the broadcasters will need to find more creative ways to use that content as opposed to just putting it up uh, versus, uh, as well as uh, finding new content such as a, a 2K example. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and so, then oh, sorry, sorry. I, and to your second question around <laughs> uh, whether it's sort of the digital, that's like digital new media uh, mm -hmm. becomes a, a greater platform for uh, traditional sports consumption. I think, yeah, we're starting, we, we are continuing to see that. So whether it was what you mentioned with Amazon and, and, the, and their package of Premier League rights or even Wimbledon and French Open type rights, Thursday Night Football here in the States. Um, those are often cited as, as key examples. And, and candidly, you know, Octagon uh, was fortunate enough more, just before uh, sort of the, this interesting period began uh, of, of more stay at home and work from home environments. Uh, we were fortunate enough to work with the NWSL to help them secure deals with CBS and Twitch uh, for their upcoming season. And so you're starting to see a lot of different uh, entities uh, on, the, on the rights holder side um, more seriously consider and even engage with those new media platforms. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what's, what's important to keep in mind is that the traditional uh, sports broadcasters, sports networks are not just standing put, right? They are all developing their own services, ESPN Plus, CBS All Access, uh, Bleacher Report Live, uh, Gold Pass, and Peacock for NBC, just to name a few examples. So the traditional guys are also deploying their portfolio of rights that they've licensed onto these new platforms as well. So as all of these things continue to happen and take place, especially in this current period of time, I think all those things together will just make it so that um, this new market becomes more and more of a, of a thing, more viable both from a distribution perspective and, and hopefully down the line from a, a true financial perspective. Because currently, if, you, if you're honest with, with yourselves, the dollars that you're seeing on the digital side for deals even the ones we mentioned, still pale in comparison mm -hmm. to the dollars that uh, an NFL would get from, from their traditional TV relationships and their traditional TV deals. And as long as that dynamic exists, it's going to be very hard for suddenly this wave of things to suddenly go all the way to the other end, unless it was these traditional sports broadcasters making that decision within the rights that they have. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they like to, you know, ESPN likes to, uh, or the NFL likes making CBS NBC and ESPN each pay a billion dollars or whatever it is. I'm sure that's going to stay exactly the same in that case. But um, awesome, man. This was 
wonderful. I guess just one last question, like what are, sure. what are you doing now kind of with this shutdown? Like how are you advising clients and, and obviously not specifics, but like what are you trying to do, you know, especially knowing that we're, you know, at least 30 more days before anything can happen as of recording at least. And I mean, if we're all being honest, it feels like it's not going to be to like 4th of July that baseball is going to start. So how are you kind of dealing with this time and really helping clients understand what is happening and what can potentially go forward? Yeah, I, I think it's it's three general areas. One is the, the in reference to the question we just talked about, which is what other content can help fill fill the programming voids. And so that's a combination of talking with our clients and, and other parties in the market about being creative, right? And then bringing that creativity and, and developing it into an opportunity that then we can have conversations with broadcasters about who are the ones that need to kind of plug these holes. And so you're, 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 our role there is maybe to play as a as some of the grease in the machine to help, mm -hmm. uh, connect the dots a little bit. Uh, the second part is is working with our existing clients in, in two capacities. One is helping them with sort of scenario planning, right? And so it's saying, hey, yeah, we don't exactly know when seasons will restart or how long this will impact leagues and properties that start play in the fall. But knowing that those are potential realities, as well as things like, oh, the whole playing without fans, maybe, or things of that nature, what can you be doing to start to plan for those eventualities so that when it becomes very clear which path we will be going down, mm -hmm. you're not starting from a back foot or, or from a zero position. You're starting with a plan already in place, and it's just about executing it. And then the last piece is because we all expect and believe the um, – the world to revert back to some level of normalcy uh, with live gameplay happening some sometime in the future. Uh, broadcast deals, media rights deals traditionally are, are pretty either one, they're, they're pretty uh, long in terms of their duration, their term. They're not like necessarily an annual mm -hmm. conversation, nor are the negotiations happening right before the deal expires. You're usually talking uh, with with your existing parties or trying to engage the market well before, just given how budgets on both the ad spend side uh, and the programming side usually work. And so for us, it's just about um, still working on those deals because we, we know that they still need mm -hmm. to be solved, whether it's renewed, signed, negotiated. Um, and so we're still working on those as business as usual. That's probably the most business as usual part of our, our business. That's awesome. Thankfully, you can still get to keep doing what you do and what you're really good at. Um, William Mao, this was incredible. VP of Media Rights. I said your last name, right? Correct? Correct. Awesome. I, I, I say it right. I mean, then an hour later, I forget how it's said. So sometimes I'm not great at it. William Mao, VP of Media Rights Consulting at Octagon. Really appreciate your time today, man. No problem, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity and stay safe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of For the Love of Sports with Millie. William Mao, as I said, absolutely fantastic all around. So much information, so much to do, and I hope you guys learned a lot about him as well as what to do, how to do it, and a little bit about media rights. I think it's pretty cool too. So make sure to follow him on all of his socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes, Apple, Spotify, anywhere else would be great too. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.